This episode of Beyond the Bottom Line is brought to you by the Program on Entrepreneurship at the Yale School of Management, where we're educating students for business and society. So uh, welcome to today's version of Beyond the Bottom Line, brought to you by the Yale School of Management's Program on Entrepreneurship. Today, we are super excited to have Mike Grillo, who is president and founder of Gravity Products, here with us. Mike, if you could talk a little bit about background, how this has evolved from essentially what was a media company into now a product company, into a product company in an enviable position of having generated a good amount of revenues over the past two years. Yeah, it is a uh, a long and interesting story, but I'll try to keep it as tight as possible. So we started as a, uh, I joined this company Futurism um, in 2016, late 2016, and uh, it's a media company and media is a troubled space. Um, so looking for sources of revenue became uh, an imperative. We weren't going to play in a pure play digital ad space. So we started to look around and see that some other publishers were pushing product, actually developing their own product, not even just affiliate but uh, homegrown and then selling it directly to their customers where they owned the full margin, um, didn't have to give out any affiliate costs. Um, and so we started to think about what what our readers have been gravitating towards. And so we were doing a lot on no sleep. No pun intended. Right. Oh, Sorry. I love that. <laughs> I love it. No, it's uh, it's important. Um, we started to look at what our readers were uh gravitating towards, no pun intended. And they um, were reading a lot about the science of sleep, the science of mindfulness. And so we were thinking about sort of low-tech but high-science products in that space. And weighted blankets were something that caught our eye. Um, There had been nothing really on the market that was super consumer-facing, very um, sort of constrained to these medical communities. So people on the autism spectrum, um, adults with PTSD. And so the concept was we could take this, which has been scientifically proven in these specific patient populations, um, rebrand it into a sort of this like premium wellness product and then sell it to our uh, readers. And we did that um, by launching it on Kickstarter and it sort of just took off from there. Sure. So can we talk a little bit about that Kickstarter launch and you have this idea, you've done a little bit of testing in advance to figure out whether or not it would be a viable idea, but you go out with the expectation that you'll generate $25,000, $50,000? Yeah. We were taking bets um, as to you know what we would close the month at because the Kickstarter campaign runs for 29 days. Um, I think the highest we saw was someone someone guessed two hundred fifty grand, and everyone was like, absolutely not. And they're like, well, if we hit two fifty, dollars this guy owes us a trip to Miami, um, which we never got, by the way. But uh, quickly, within, I would say, an hour of launch, we'd already done $100,000 and almost closed day one at a million dollars, which sort of just proved that we had really touched on something. And from there, it was all about like, all right, well, A, how do now that we've got all this demand, how do we produce the quality product? Because, you know, the whole point of Kickstarter is that you don't necessarily have that inventory on hand. It's it's that money is used to fulfill and finish developing the product. Um, but then also, how do we capitalize on this? We clearly have hit something. We closed the campaign with almost $5 million. Um, so we quickly thought, like, how do we build a team and scale this out into a, a proper brand? Talking about kind of that convergence of content and commerce, can you speak a little bit more tactically about how you leverage futurism specifically, you know, obviously for the the Kickstarter campaign, but even before that, to validate that there was a product need there in the first place? And then kind of on an ongoing basis, can you talk a little bit about that integration between the two? Yeah. So while the futurism audience was not necessarily huge enough to command, you know, million-dollar ad budgets, it was certainly substantial enough to... 
um, get a lot of data from. The, the sample size was certainly there. And so we were, before anything, we were surveying, we conducted this really, looking back on it, it's such a funny survey. Um, we tested um, silver-infused socks, um, for that you could wear multiple what times. What exactly would be the use case yeah. for silver? So silver is antimicrobial, and you could that. wear them, you know, longer up to three times. But so silver socks were one of them, and the weighted blanket was one of them, and there were a few others. So um, that initial, you know, read from um, the survey, and then we were, you know, serving that particular audience because Futurism is a very Facebook-driven um, publication. We have all of that resourcing. We were using um, just a very light ad spend to drive traffic to these sort of faux landing pages where we had the product featured and, and saw how we could either capture an email from the reader or potentially capture a purchase from them. And so that core of, you know, we have about 10 million followers on Facebook um, became sort of how we informed the product. Uh, once we launched, we were still sort of in the days, this was 2017, where Facebook was driving a ton of views to publishers, which they've since stopped doing. But even a bad video for Futurism at the time was seeing 500,000, you know, views. So when we put out the Gravity video, it immediately amassed like millions of views in the first day. And so that was really the mechanism that we used to, we, we took that video that we published and we pitched it to, we had at the time what we call share partners. So other science-based publications that we would do content swaps for. So we went to Seeker and now this science and we're like, hey, we've got this video that we just did. It's blowing up. Will you share it for us too? And so we started pitching around our own video and sort of the virality began from there. So let's take a second before we move on to the product itself to talk about Facebook itself mm -hmm. and the evolution since two, 2017. And Facebook, I think, is now the brand that media companies love to hate. Yeah. Um, and so can you t talk a little bit about how some of those changes have impacted Futurism's business, impacted your business? Yeah, it, it's a. it's been a we. Futurism began at a really interesting time in that it was just the tail end of where a lot of these new media startups were really blowing up. You had BuzzFeed, obviously, in like the late 2000s, um, and they had scaled to a, you know, a billion-dollar valuation. Um, so at the time, Futurism was able to grow really fast, and we owe Facebook everything because it allowed us to raise money, um, you know, a 10 million-person community with, we were touting at one point billions of views a month, which was not inaccurate. We truly had billions of views. Were they, looking back on it, were they actual views? Whatever Facebook was reporting, who knows? But that was how we were able to raise the money. But at the same time, when Facebook decided that publishers were no longer going to be a huge priority for them for one reason or another, it sort of killed a lot of those mid-tier new media companies. Futurism, because we had diversified to product, was okay, but there are, you know, Mike's a really great example of a company that um, was relying very heavily on Facebook and, and ended up having to sell at a quarter of their valuation. So, um, yeah, we love to hate Facebook. They're the reason why we exist, but they're the reason why a lot of our friends in media are no longer um, employed. Yeah. Tough week in media this week. That's another tough week in media this week. Yeah. Um, so can we talk then a little bit about you You raised $4.5 million or somewhere thereabouts. Mm -hmm. um, now you have to go out and actually figure out how to manufacture the product. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Totally. At the time, um, and this is not atypical for a Kickstarter, you, de you definitely don't have inventory on hand. You have very functional prototypes, looks like prototypes, works like prototypes. And so um, we very quickly realized that, all right, now we close, we have 30,000 of these orders to fulfill. Um, so scrambled to find um, a, a, a sourcing agent to help us because 
Uh, we don't have, you know, at the time, no one had ever developed a product before. We didn't have these connections in China. We ended up finding um, this gentleman who was uh, working at Quirky, which was the invention platform, and had started their overseas office in Hong Kong. And so he was like, this is actually quite easy for me. I'm used to building all sorts of electronics. I can build you this blanket very easily. Um, and so that's what helped. Really quickly, how did you actually find him? Was that personal networks or was it? We um, we were really envious of what BuzzFeed was doing um, with products at the time, and they had hired him freelance from Quirky, and he was working on um, BuzzFeed had their homesick candle line, which was like a bespoke candle. They had the the tasty one top um, you know cooking device, and so he had worked on all of those, and so we had heard about him from there, and we're like, well, we need to work with this guy because he's worked with publishers, he's worked with um, he's he's been in Asia for many years, and so that's sort of how we um, were able to accelerate our development because without him. Uh, we would certainly be in a different space. So you've got it. You do how much in sales the first year? Ten million the first year. That's crazy. And then um, the second year was all about trying to a continue, you know, driving volume on the core product, but b quickly innovating because we saw a lot of Me Too's coming out. So really, what else do we have? We we developed quickly a weighted sleep mask, which was a runaway hit. We were playing in like which various- I heard was. Five pounds at one point? Yeah, it was up to five pounds. The first prototype was like enormous on your face. And so we're like, this is probably 10x too heavy. Um, but became a runaway hit. And then, you know, quickly started innovating on the 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 materials that we were using. So we developed a faux fur for the winter that we like, we were inspired by this awesome restoration hardware faux fur throw. And we're like, oh, let's put that on the gravity blanket. Let's do a cooling version. Let's do special prints and patterns. And so quickly tried to build out an assortment that made it feel... Um, as much of a real brand as as we could, despite the fact that we were at the time only maybe three or four people. Um, so the first year was expanding the line, building the team, and last year we were up to uh, we're up to ten people, uh, twelve if you count contractors, and we grew another sixty percent. We closed last year at sixteen and a half million, so uh, growing. Um, but the nice part being, we we're not venture backed, so there's no the expectations are really what we make them, right? We're we're trying to manage top line growth with the brand with. The bottom, we want to run profitably. We ran profitably last year, which is not something a lot of DTCs can say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's nice to not have to, you know, triple-digit growth year over year. It's that's a that's a grind for sure. So you're trying to build out what you're calling a science-based wellness brand. Can you talk a little bit about that and the strategy there? Yeah. So the nice part about gravity and why it resonated so deeply with the futurism community is that, of course, futurism is that the consumers are there for our our scientific integrity. The work we were doing at the time, we had a, a PhD in science writing as our editor-in-chief. So we were really well-known for true science. And so that was the reason I think people loved the fact that the blanket had actual data behind it. So um, leaning into that, but also not making it too clinical because sometimes the science piece is, is obviously you want that validation, but you don't want to feel like you're a patient um, necessarily. Um, so finding that balance is sort of uh, the the wellness angle is what sort of balances out this sort of like hard science. So the partnership with Calm was a really big part of that and that this is sort of a much more like holistic approach to, um, to your sleep and wellness. So a little bit about a uh, new product that you're launching, Mellowment, which is building on this whole CBD trend right now. Talk a little bit about product de- development for that particular product and why you chose to go with a pill versus another form factor and how you came up with the formulation. And Yeah, so the, the CBD thing was everyone was really into it in the office. We were testing a million different types. Um, quickly learned that 
because the space is so nascent, there are a variety of different types of formulations. The integrity of the product is not always there. So we made a really, the, the first version of our CBD line is actually a collaboration with Melloman. And they're an established company that we've sort of vetted and known, and they're vertically integrated out of Colorado. So for us, finding like a, a collaboration on the first one was the way to go to ensure that we were delivering a product that we could totally stand by because we are admittedly not experts in the emulsification process and all that sort of stuff. So um, we launched with Melamint or we're launching with them tomorrow. Um, and then the interesting piece is that because CBD is so proliferated, what's our angle on it? So we are one of the few brands that will be in the market that also has melatonin and chamomile in our CBD. Um, so it's a specific use case for sleep as opposed to just sort of a lot of the stuff out there is very you know general, take the CBD and you'll feel more calm. Ours is a specific use case for sleep. Yeah, the anxiety market right now is is it's booming. It's booming. It's incredible. I think I myself. Am Thank you, Donald flow. Trump. Yeah, for uh, that. <laughs> no, please. I know we owe the Donald sometimes. <laughs> um, so, again, back to this idea of the partnerships that you've built out with Beats and with with Calm. Can you talk a little bit about how those evolved, um, and when you're going forward, looking at the next set of products that you're looking to build? You know, who are your ideal partners? Yeah, folks that I think you know we're constantly. And, I, you know, it's, you're so in the brand, you don't really know exactly what people perceive you as. I'm constantly obsessed with the fact that we're only known for this blanket and we're a Kickstarter product and that's it. And so everything we do as a brand from a partnership standpoint is to try to hedge against that. So, which is why going, we don't even really, we, we do do some stuff with betting companies, but we actually want to go even beyond betting. And that's why Com was so important. That's why Beats is important. Um, that's why some of our hotel partnerships are important. The spa partnerships that we do are important because we're trying to sort of break this perception that we are, you know, a flash in the pan Kickstarter product. So that's sort of the key criteria is like, are they wellness-based? Can they do more for us in the consumer's eyes than, and then just sort of pigeonhole us in this Kickstarter, um, you know, perception? So going forward, what are some of the other things that you're thinking about in terms of partnerships, including, you know, things like Melamite? You said you have pop-ups yeah. On. Are you partnering with people for those pop-ups? Yeah, we like to, because we are, again, like not, we're not venture backed. So we don't necessarily have the liberty of, you know, pop-ups are very, very expensive. So we, we try to find other partners. So for example, um, we did a lot with philosophy, which is a very high, I did not know what philosophy was before this, but they're a very high end uh, skincare line. They're one of the largest independent skincare uh, companies in the world, and they just started opening their own brick and mortars. We reached out to them because they have this spot, the Oculus in New York City, and they were really talking a lot about wellness. And so we're like, oh, can we be in your store to be like, while the customer is trying on their skincare regimen, they can sort of lounge with the blanket. So trying to be scrappy about finding those opportunities where we can bring them foot traffic because we have such a uh, you know, we're so in tuned with Facebook marketing, we're able to pinpoint those locations and drive foot traffic. And then in exchange, we get space in their stores. So that's going to be a continued tactic. I think at some point we are graduating to now where uh, we, we do have one of our own spaces that is in um, Soho uh, and hope to do more of those, but also trying to be practical about like how much all these things cost. Yeah, real estate prices in New York City. Yeah, now they for, can be expensive. <laughs> yeah, they can be expensive, but they're heck of a lot cheaper than they were 10 years ago. Very true. Um, so talk a little bit about your background. You worked for VaynerMedia before and how that has helped you as CEO. Yeah, I, I started in agencies um, 
And I think working at Vayner was really interesting. I came on pretty early. I wasn't like, there are a couple of my friends laugh at me when I say I was 50 because they were like two. And it's always a competition, like who was earliest at Vayner? Um, and so I was like the 50th employee. By the time I left, Gary had grown the business to almost 700 and now he's at a thousand. So what was cool is that I was able to see like really meteoric growth in a very short period of time and how you manage growth, what you let slip what you sacrifice in exchange for growth what can what can you compromise on what can't you compromise on and i think that was sort of my biggest takeaway is like sometimes you need to let go of the fact that something will break along the way and as long as the the majority of the train is still rolling it's okay and that's sort of the biggest thing i learned from from gary for sure so final question to to wrap up because i always find this to be the most interesting question and i don't think it's spoken about enough in startups is uh fear and failure um, what's your biggest failure and, uh, what's keeping you up at night most right now? Um, my biggest failure so far was sort of the, after the initial Kickstarter, we, uh, definitely were unprepared for the demand. And I think let a couple of those customers down. And I'm mostly sorry to my mom who one of the customers found her on Facebook and started commenting on her wall about Don't how- Don't do that to people. Yeah, please leave, leave my mom alone about how I was a fraud and she should be ashamed of her son and all that sort of stuff. So that was the biggest failure. My biggest fear is that um, tomorrow will be irrelevant and that this is all just a trend. I don't believe that to be true, but I think anyone in this type of space, be it mattress in a boxes or- uh, meditation apps or anything that's sort of really nascent is always afraid that they're going to be like a one-hit wonder. And that's um, a constant fear of mine. Great. Uh, and last question, and this may be a tough one to do on the spot, but a uh, book that you w- would recommend to read before you go to sleep at night underneath your gravity blanket? Um, oh, God. I'm, I don't read. Oh, my God. It's really bad. I do. I um I, I keep plugging common. Everyone thinks that I'm like sponsored, but they have these cool sleep stories and they have one with Matthew McConaughey who reads to you. Um, and so that's a, a version of a book, but I, I'm really bad in that I don't read. It's really embarrassing to say. Your mother will appreciate she, hearing yeah, that Yeah, she will, too. 100%. So, well, Mike, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. And we're delighted you came to Yale today and that you're spending time with some of our students. And We can't wait to try all the next new products that you've got coming out. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome.